about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. We're going to dig into God's Word together. This is our last week in the Questioning God series, having to think through some of the common issues uh, modern people find with faith, honestly, openly, authentically examining those questions and looking what Scripture has to answer them with effectively. This week we're going to have a bit of a contemplate about the Bible or Scripture and see some of the issues to do with that. Now, this is Jermaine Greer. You might know Jermaine Greer. Uh, in 2012, she was involved in a debate in uh, the Brisbane Writers' Festival entitled, Whether the Bible is Good for You. Now, you may expect Jermaine Greer to come out all guns blazing. She kind of did. Uh, she, for a long time, has uh, expressed her dismay at the Bible and particularly the way that it is used to create certain cultural stereotypes that are used by the powerful to hold people into particular ways of life. So during her answer, she did say that it was a silly book and a grand illusion, and if taken too seriously, you would end up in a big mess. But the main substance of her answer to the question is quite different. She said, if you have not read the Bible, do. In the end, it may have been deluded, but it was a grand delusion with unimaginable impact, and it has created our modern society. She said, if you've never read the Bible, you will not know how strong human yearning is for God and for social justice and peace and transcendence. In the end, she remarked, it is an amazing human construction of immense beauty and poetic power. Quite a fascinating response, don't you think? On the one hand, a rejection of the use of the Bible as a means of power and the acceptance of the Bible as a sort of creative and spiritual uh, source of inspiration, if you like. This kind of drives us, I think, to the heart of the way that modern Australia tends to handle the Bible, a rejection of it as a source of power over public life, and maybe an acceptance of it as a spiritual guide. And that's the question I really want to tackle today. Well, maybe that's a better way to handle Scripture. If people misuse it, then why not just allow it to be that way? a private source of inspiration. But the problem with that approach is it doesn't really solve the problem that Jermaine Greer really dislikes. Her issue is with men in particular using the Bible as a human tool of power. Her answer is for it to be used as a human tool of self-fulfillment. 
The problem is, is that either way, it's just a human tool that human power is directing towards its own end. You don't really escape the problem that you started with. But the Bible, as it thinks and speaks about itself, suggests an alternative. That it is, in fact, not a human tool at all, but a divine tool. Useful and powerful and mighty in God's hands in a way it never is in ours. So I want to take you through three things about the Bible and how it can be a divine tool, perhaps, instead of the, uh, the, the human tool it is used as. First is this. From 2 Peter, we get the picture that the Bible is not simply human. Now, Jermaine talked about it being a beautiful construction of, of loving its storytelling, of, of feeling the weight of its creativity, its resonance with the human spirit, but ultimately considers it a human construction. And, and ultimately, when you're looking at the Bible, most people have to make a decision of one of two camps of what it is. Either it's a human book re- recounting past experiences with God, in some sense, recorded, but mainly human. Or whether it's kind of like a digital download where the bitrate was so slow that it came over two millennia from on high. But in the end, it's just dropped out of the heavens. 2 Peter rejects both of those things, if you noticed. The Bible is unlike any other Thing. Have a look. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, prophecy is being used for the, the whole oracles of the Old Testament at this point, no prophecy, all of the Old Testament, none of it came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Straight away, Peter is saying, it's not simply human. Its origin is not the human imagination, not the human interpretation of events that happened in the past. It's not a human recounting of things uh, from God. It doesn't have its center, its purpose in that. Instead, what is it? But men spoke from God. Its origin is divine. And yet at the same time, it's men and women who spoke it. It really is a book of real human poetry, human storytelling, human historical recounting of genealogies of real people, of love songs, of heroic tales, of glimpses into pictures and paintings of the future and the past and the present. All of human artistry is on display in Scripture. And yet, in, in, in and through and above and over that is the voice of God. Men spoke from God. You see, when you pick up the Bible according to this count, and you read a song of David, and you in your mind's eye, capture its perfection and beauty and it moves and stirs you about God and humanity. You have not just heard David. You've heard the voice of God. 
When you come to the center of a great heroic battle in the story of David and God's almighty power is on display, you have not just read a human tale. You have heard God announcing his power in the first person to you. This is the remarkable thing that the Bible and Scripture is. You see, the Bible is not like the Quran. It is not dictated, downloaded from on high. Take this down, Muhammad, line by line by line, or like the Book of Mormon. Here are some special glasses. Translate these plates that I've dropped in front of you and hand that out. No, what does it say? Verse 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that phrase, carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, see the freedom that offers, right? That these were real human artists, real human storytellers, real human authors. And yet as they spoke and wrote and considered, the Holy Spirit was, was uplifting and upholding them, sanctifying their work, overintending it with all the other things he was going to write throughout all the millennia into one masterpiece. In those moments where the Bible is written, real human voices are sanctified and brought to become words of the living God. Now this radically changes the way you go about Scripture. In 2 Peter, Peter says, pay careful attention until something rises in your heart. I love that. But perhaps if your reading of Scripture is always calm, sensible, warm and soothing, perhaps you aren't doing it right. Because the reason why, according to Germaine Greer, the Bible upended the world is that it is the voice of the living God in every sentence, in every passage, in every way. And if the Bible doesn't confront you, if it doesn't confuse you, if it doesn't cut you, if it doesn't pierce you, if it doesn't present problems to you, then perhaps you are listening to your voice rather than God's voice. Because the Bible is not simply human. In one remarkable way that is not true of any other piece of holy or uh, religious writing in all the world, it is perfectly human. What we hear is God lisping to us in our own tongue, in words covered with pimples and nose hairs that are like us. Because God isn't just interested in dropping some advice or your cold-hearted adherence to a set of principles. He's interested in you hearing his voice and knowing him. So he will speak to you through words that you can know. The Bible is not simply human. But the second thing is this. The Bible is also not really about you at all. The Bible is not about you. 
Now, this is very important, and it, it speaks to the problem that we have that once we've picked up Scripture and we start hearing God's voice in it and we start to go, what do I do with that? That's really strange. Um, you know, there's moments where the Bible turns your stomach because it's so disturbing and you're thinking, I don't know what to do with that. Or you're just thinking, how do I lay this into my life? How, how do we deal with that? And, and the problem that our modern age has placed on us is it's said to us that whenever you read anything, relate it first of all to yourself. This is what I learned in year 12 English. Sorry, Nikki. That I am to approach texts and readings and discern them based on my own experience of the world. To reject what the author is doing and instead to construct something out of it for myself. Where it resonates with my intuition and experience, I will keep it. And through my lens of the world, I will gather from it what I need to do life. This greatly hampers our ability to hear God's voice. Greatly hampers it. And and after Jesus was raised from the dead and was giving a lesson in interpretation to a couple of unknowing men walking along a road, which is terrifying when I think about it, that Jesus, in this story, he appears beside these men without the men knowing that it's Jesus. And they're trying to make sense of why Jesus died and the stories about him rising and what it all means, trying to interpret it together for themselves. And, and Jesus listens carefully, hears their disappointments, and then launches in with this, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then again, a bit later with all the disciples, he said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus, after his resurrection, says, The Bible is not about you, it's about me. He's really clever. He he takes the threefold division of the Old Testament. The the Jews divide the Old Testament into the Torah, the law, the Navim, the prophets, and the Katarim, the writings, all the other weird stuff, right? And he says, I'm I'm in Moses, I'm in the prophets, I'm in the writings. All of it, every bit of it, it is about me. It prophesies about me. And the New Testament is sent out from me. All of Scripture points to me, comes from me, is about me. Because Jesus Christ is the only Son of the Father. He is the thing that God eternally says. And so the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture is summoning us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the Bible. The Bible in the hands of God is a divine tool to summon us into communion with Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. 
If this is not just a book dropped from on high with some life principles and ways to avoid getting hit by God in the end, but that all of the commands and all of the tricky bits and all of the, the things, all of them are about the Jesus Christ at the center and being summoned into faith in him, then that changes the way you read every story. All the great heroes of the Bible are shadows of Jesus Christ. Every great command is a reflection of his perfection. Every love song is a song to tune our hearts to love him. Every history book written is waiting for his coming. All of it is about him. And I think this is so helpful to the way you interpret scripture. Because it means that in every text, you're not saying, how does this relate to me? How is this about me? But where is Jesus in this? How is the Holy Spirit summoning me to Christ the Son? What do I see here of his perfection, of his beauty, of the holiness that he's given me, of the righteousness he's given me, of the future I have in him? How from this might I love him? It helps, too, with the bits you don't understand in the Bible. And everyone has bits they don't understand. That's fine. You have bits that, you know, it's a human book. You're just not smart enough to know everything about it and understand everything. Written over millennia. But when you know, when you can see, if you accept this analogy, if you can see the whole big picture of something, right? The full beauty of his Van Gogh's Starry Night, right? Beautiful. You see the fullness of the picture, then even if you have some bits that are blanked out, that you can't really make sense of, the whole is not obscured. And even in light of the whole, maybe those blank bits even make a little sense. When we see Christ at the center of Scripture, it gives us a reason to trust the bits we don't like. To trust the fact that even if we can't get it, that maybe the Holy Spirit still knew what he was doing and that it is still a word from God summoning us to Christ the Son. And then we use the whole picture to interpret the parts. Rather than using our culture and our experience, we sit down with brothers and sisters in community not just our community, but communities of centuries of people who have written about Scripture and related it to Jesus and sit down together and go, what is this about? How do we make sense of this? How is this a word to God from us, word to us from God? How is it summoning us to Christ the Son? The Bible is not a self-help book about you. It is the good news about Jesus Christ that you cannot help yourself. And I find that enormously freeing as I read Scripture. But the third thing that we need to get to as we make sense of the fact it's not simply human and it's not really about you, is then what do we do with it? Well, the Bible in the end is to be consumed rather than critiqued. This is what Jesus said, actually, when he was in the desert dueling with the devil, which is a pretty good context to say something, right? 
He said to the devil, Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible to Jesus Christ was sustenance. It was something that fed you, something that bore you up even when you didn't have bread. It's so much deeper than a spiritual guide at that point. It's the thing your soul needs or you'll die. And so as we, you flick to Psalm 1, you see the same sort of picture of, uh, of what Scripture is in the mouth of the psalmist, who paints this picture of two different types of people with remarkably different habits and what their life looks like. There's the type of person who is conformed to the people around them, and there is the person who consumes the Word of God. In Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Walking, standing, sitting. Strong, habitual markers of dwelling in the substance of sinners and of the world. Habitually being conformed to it. The destiny of them, the psalmist says, verse 4, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. They will not stand in the judgment. But then there is those who delight in the law of the Lord. And on his law meditate day and night. What the psalmist is talking about in that word meditate is almost like stuttering. It's a word not for some internal spiritual thing you do, but something you do with your mouth audibly. It's a word for kind of muttering things under your breath. Like you've taken some words and are continually audibly rolling them around in your mouth like a fine wine or a lint chocolate ball. That you are, you have the word in your mouth constantly. Eating it to the extent that it becomes a stream of water that runs along your feet and you suck it up through your toes like roots. And you become a tree of such sturdiness and endurance that the wildest famine cannot shake you. Picture is of, of the word of God being such a continuous brook of water that it can supply you in whatever season of life you find yourself in, good or bad or evil or joyful or painful that it can enable you to bear fruit, to not wither, and even prosper in adversity. The Word of God is that sort of sustenance to a soul, giving capacity to stand up under whatever comes, whatever it looks like, if you are willing to just keep it in your mouth. George Muller, 
or Mueller, not sure which one, Englishman, 19th century, became father to 10,000 orphans. 10,000 orphans. Started 127 schools. He started this great work of uh, orphanages when he, in 1836. Uh, and it was an awful, awfully hard thing to do in Britain at the time. But what he describes in his life is that in 1841, something shifted in him, in his faith, that kind of enabled and strengthened him moving forward in a way he never had previously. He says he discovered that the thing he needed most in every day was to find himself happy in the Lord. And he says, I'd pick up just a little verse of Scripture and I'd search in it. Not for the sake of my preaching or my teaching or my service of others, but for the sake of obtaining food for my soul. And how different when my soul was full and happy in the early morning to then walk through the service and trials and temptations of the day. Something just triggered in him in 1841 and he thought, I've been lifting up scripture, I've been praying, but, but I need scripture not just to be words in my head, I need them to be food for my heart and my soul. I need to feed on it during the day and I can't be content with walking into my day unless I've seen something I can keep in my mouth and chew on till I've glimpsed something of my God that is so mighty and holy and mighty that it will bear up under the disappointments of this day. You see, I'm not trying to sell self-discipline to you this morning or a new Bible or any habit. I'm, just, I'm not trying to do that today. I'm not wrapping you over the knuckles about whether you read the Bible enough. But, but perhaps God's word to us today is that we need to stop critiquing the word and start eating it. to search in it for such refreshment to deal with the life that God has given to us. Maybe we've been waking up eating Skittles every morning when we just need to eat some bread. Maybe the spiritual nourishment of our news feeds and our daily platitudes are just not enough. And really, what are they compared to what we find in the words of God? The problem we have is that we much prefer to be in control of the word of God than to listen to it. But you know, there was one who ate the word of God like it was going out of style, who considered his life to be the very embodiment of Scripture itself. And yet, do you know what? He didn't become a prosperous tree by a river. He ended up on a cursed cross. Why? So that when you take the words of Scripture on your mouth, regardless of what has happened in the past, they might become the living water of the eternal life that he has won for you.
Jesus Christ became a man who stood with sinners and sat in their place and did not stand in the judgment of God, that you might not perish, but eat his word and live. So can I summon you today to, in whatever way is possible, with whoever you need, with whatever you need, to pick up some morsel of Scripture and to not be content until your soul feels happy and full, until you glimpse in it the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ who became a cursed tree that you might become an eternal one. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you today and confess the way that we have handled the Scriptures and your Word to us and confess that we would prefer to keep it at a distance and rather that it wouldn't speak about so many things so confrontingly. Father, we want to turn from critiquing to consuming today. We want to repent of that and, and, and take up your word as a way of communing with you, as a way of being sustained in the life you've given us. And so we pray that you would help us take up your word in such a way that it nourishes us and deepens our love of Jesus Christ. And we pray this for his sake. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.